from Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podcast. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Podvocate, everyone. My name is Matt Doran. I am here today with professor at UNLV Law, Francine Lippmann, who is one of the nation's foremost experts on tax law and particularly how the tax law and its policies and practices perpetuate the wealth gap between white and black Americans. And we're going to be discussing her work today, her thoughts on the tax system and what we can do to make it better. Professor Lippmann, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Well, first of all, thank you for this opportunity. I love talking about tax and especially on this type of topic, which is tax and social justice. So I am a law professor at UNLV. I am the William S. Boyd Professor of Law. And in my spare time, I also serve the great state of Nevada as a tax commissioner, a state tax commissioner. But of course, today I'm going to be speaking in my individual capacity. And what I like to do with respect to tax law, I practiced as a CPA. I'm a CPA as well as a tax attorney. And so I practiced in both areas, working for candidly, very wealthy individuals and corporations and helping them artfully manipulate the tax system. All along, though, it became very apparent to me when I was a CPA as well as a lawyer that tax justice is truly an issue for working families. And now as a law professor, I have the luxury of writing and thinking critically about vulnerable taxpayers. When I think about vulnerable taxpayers, unfortunately, there are a lot of different communities. I think of members of the armed services, people with disabilities, LGBTQ individuals, and communities of color. And most recently, because of COVID-19 and the pressure on our economy and the police violence against Black individuals that has truly exploded across our country, we've been thinking about the intersection of the racial wealth gap and the tax system. And I've had the pleasure of talking to a lot of people, including bright minds like yours, about this issue. So I really appreciate it. And the more we can all critically think about tax and not just think about it as something you don't want to pay, but as a tool in our fiscal playbook. Well, thank you, Professor Lippman. I, I appreciate the, uh, the bright minds. Uh, kudos. I don't know how much of that is going to be true. I've had, I am on my third tax class now, uh, so I don't know about bright minds, but I can, I can do my research, and I'm hoping that our discussion today will hopefully give listeners uh, some, uh, some insight into your research and to how this, what might seem to be a topic that they might not have much uh, relevance to them is actually very relevant indeed. Before we dive in, please define the wealth gap. And 
And before we even get to gap, let's talk about wealth. Do you agree that wealth is calculated by adding up total assets, you know, your cash, retirement accounts, whatever your home value might be, and then subtracting your liabilities, credit card, any kind of student loan, mortgage, debt. And that's your, your worth. Is that an accurate description of what worth is? Absolutely. Um, when we think of it, it's really your net worth. So your explanation is spot on. And when we think of it, I like to, because of my accounting background, I love thinking about assets and liabilities. And so it's your assets, but at fair market value, reduced by exactly what you said, your liabilities to come up with your net worth. What's interesting, since students are listening to this, students often have a negative net worth because their assets their assets might be very modest. You might not own a home. Maybe you have a car, but when you think of the fair market value of it, it might not be very significant. And then you look at your liabilities. So you could have a negative net worth, but of course, law students, we think of having enormous potential, but you're spot on. That's wealth. Okay, and very briefly, um, and just to drive home the point, the, please describe real quick the difference between wealth and income. Absolutely. So when we think of income, and again, kind of looking at it from a tax perspective, we measure our income for tax purposes, and it doesn't have to be this way, but we have forever in the U.S. on a calendar year or on a 12-month basis. And so that generally is how much you earn. So it's your accession to wealth clearly realized uh, by taxpayers. So for most taxpayers, that's going to be wages. Maybe some of you have a little bit of interest income or dividend, or if you're self-employed, it's your net profit. So income is on an annual basis, and wealth is arguably a snapshot of all of your assets reduced by all of your liabilities. Thank you for that explanation. I hope that gives listeners with a non-tax background um, a better baseline for this discussion. You mentioned something, uh, a realization, and can you also describe a realization? Because I think it's important for listeners to understand, like when they hear that, let's say Jeff Bezos is worth $100 million, he doesn't actually have $100 million, or even, you know, my parents who've got, they own their home, there's no, they've paid off the mortgage, they could say that they're worth X amount of dollars, but the money's in the home, they don't have that money in the bank. So it, that it actually is a really interesting concept. And as students of taxation, it's a really big concept. And it's a big difference. I think some of it proves itself out in the racial wealth gap. Well, what do I mean by that? So you can accumulate wealth over time, as you said, in appreciation of assets like your home or your stock portfolio. But for federal income tax purposes, we don't capture that income. You don't have to recognize it, report it on your income tax return until there's a realization event. And in its simplest terms, that's a sale or exchange. 
And that actually makes some sense because you until you have a realization event, quite often you can't you don't have the wherewithal to pay your tax liability. And it's not really a cashing out. But as you described, you could have enormous wealth and very little income because you haven't sold or exchange assets. And so you don't have to recognize that. So that is a tool that very high net worth individuals can use to legally dodge tax liabilities. And in fact, a very famous um, law professor at USC, Ed McCaffrey, has always said, what you should do is buy, borrow, and then die because you buy and those assets appreciate. And if you borrow against them, that's not a realization event, but yet you get the cash flow. So you've got the benefit of the cash flow. And then as we're going to talk about in a bit, once you die under our current tax system, there's a mechanism to step up the basis and that tax liability, that built-in gain, the potential tax cost disappears like magic. <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought that up. And that's that's a great segue. And so before we go into the, the nitty gritty, the tax stuff, there's, a, there's also, you know, none of this exists in a vacuum. Um, whatever tax policies might be helpful to one community and harmful to another community. They all, they're working uh, in concert with other policies, other, uh, whether it be government or societal practices that enable these things to flourish. Any, and our core listeners are Loyola community uh, and all current students before they began their 1L year read The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. And so many of our listeners are familiar with redlining housing districts with Black soldiers who returned from World War II who were not able to get uh, veterans' loans in the way that white Ameri- white soldiers returning from World War II were, were recluded from certain GI Bill benefits. So with that hi- historical knowledge in mind for a lot of our listeners, I'm going to describe a situation that I'd like you, because uh, you mentioned basis, um, which um, might be a new term for some of our listeners, but I'm going to describe a situation and I'd like you to kind of break it down. Uh, and this is true. I'm an only child. My parents bought their house in 1973. They bought it for $70,000 right before the housing market exploded, uh, far outstripping the rate of inflation. So they bought it in 1973 for 70 grand. It's now worth about $700,000. If my parents were to sell that house today, whatever they should only be taxed on the difference between that $700,000 and $70,000 because that first $70,000 was their money. So that make, and that makes sense. But if they were to get in a car accident today and the house were to pass to me as the only child, and then I turned around the next day and sold it for 700000 how much would I pay, Professor, in tax? Uh, the horrible news is you've lost your parents, uh, but the tax, right. <laughs> the tax system causes the assets to receive a basis for determining gain or loss equal to the fair market value on the date of death. So in accordance with your hypothetical, it'd be 700,000. You would sell it for 700,000. 
you'd receive if there's no debt on it because it's very likely paid off because your parents uh, have matured. They had a 30-year loan. Their children are uh, out of the house, married with grandchildren, and they'd have no debt. So you'd have $700,000, which is an enormous amount of inheritance, um, and have no income tax because when you receive it as an inheritance, that's excluded from your income. Plus the gain, the appreciation and wealth wouldn't be taxed. And you have 700000 Correct. <laughs> I don't need to tell you correct. Of course, you know it's correct. But for our listeners, again, I think that's where the historical knowledge really makes the situation uh, and its implications for the uh black and white wealth divide brings it sharper into focus because if you're historically shut out from the housing market and the housing market is far and away the best way to aggregate wealth because homes for most people are the highest uh, value asset that they own you know if i were to pay $630,000 in uh, on taxes on a gain that's a good chunk of money mm-hmm. if i pay 0 Zero is very, very different, and money begets money because now I just got seven hundred thousand, and I can go invest with that. I can go buy a home with that. I can go move with that. I can do so many things with that, and so that to me seems like one of that step up in basis is one of the big drivers that is piggybacking on what was a historical practice of shutting African Americans out of the housing market and is now keeping that practice de facto going. And and there's so many factors, as you indicated, that play into this. The intersection of tax, redlining, um, values, and school districts and communities. I just saw today some economists were trying to monetize the cost of racism for a black family. And they were indicating that a black family ends up paying more in interest expense compared to a similarly situated white counterpart. Why? Because of higher interest rates, because they don't get the preferential interest rates because banks have been discriminating. In addition, they typically pay, and this is just horrific, and it's systemic, higher property taxes. So black communities tend to be assessed at a higher rate than their white counterparts. And I just saw recently some terrible uh, anecdotal evidence that indicated that appraisers are giving much lower appraisals on households where it's a black family and these same families have asked, uh, gotten a second opinion, another appraiser and taken out the pictures on of their family on the wall and replaced them with a white family and the appraisals went significantly higher. So this, this seamless intersection of discrimination really exacerbates all of these issues and has presented itself in racial wealth gaps that are just shocking. 
So for example, the average black household with a college degree, uh, head of the household, that family has on average a less wealth, less wealth than a, than a white household where the individual, the head of the household, did not graduate from high school. So what economists are trying to push out is compelling empirical and anecdotal evidence that demonstrates that it isn't about personal responsibility. For too long, we've said, hey, if you work hard, if you get a good education, if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can get ahead. And that simply is not the case. Uh, you know, most people graduate from high school now. It's pretty much the exception. A very small percentage of people don't end up graduating from high school. But a white household where the head of the household has not graduated from high school, that family on average has more than a college-educated Black family. And this is because of all of this insidious intersection of so much discrimination, including at uh, in the tax system. And inherit. So if you can't accumulate wealth, as a family, because the system is against you, so many systems are against you, then it is much less likely that you're going to be able to devise wealth to the next generation. And so Black households in particular, compared to white counterparts, it's rare that they receive inheritance. And our tax system treats inheritance very, very favorably. That seven hundred hypothetical seven hundred thousand that you would receive, you don't have to pay income tax on it. In addition to no one ever having to pay any income tax on the appreciation in the asset. I I think it's also worth mentioning that as much as I mentioned that you know for most people, you're. A high value asset is is tied up in your home, um, and that you know whatever inheritance might be coming down is largely going to be coming from the home. But there are other families who have stocks, who have other financial uh, vehicles that they've invested in. Am I correct in saying that the that step up rule, where let's say my parents bought, they paid a thousand dollars for ten shares of uh, Charles Schwab stock. And now it's worth a hundred thousand dollars if they were to pass away, and then that those shares were to come to me. Is is that also then going to get a step up in basis? Is that also then if I were to turn around and sell it, pay nothing in tax? Absolutely, it's every asset you have, and it can re- if if you have a business owner. Let's suppose your parents owned a bunch of rental property; they'd owned it forever. Let's suppose as they were down, you know, moving the family from their starter house to the family house and then downsizing. Maybe they kept all those houses because they were able to increase their income because they weren't discriminated against in the workplace and got good raises over time. 
they kept those houses, prior houses, and they rented them out. Well, in our tax system, you can shelter the rental income with a wasting of the asset, and we call that depreciation expense. And so you're able, even though the asset itself is appreciating, you're able to allocate the cost of that house, that rental property, against the rental income, and in many cases, offset it completely. So to shelter that income, so really reduce the tax cost. Now, if they, when they pass away, if you were to inherit that rental property, that rental property also gets a step up in its basis to fair market value. And if you decided to rent them out, you could start depreciating it all over again. Oh, really? The, the depreciation clock resets? Yes. So it goes even better than that because the the basis goes up to fair market value, which in the case of, let's say, your parents' house, maybe you decide to rent out your parents' house and you inherit it. You have a $700,000 basis that can shelter a lot of rental income. And if you have no debt on it, that could be cash flow for your family to, and rents typically increase over time. So that could become a cash cow for your wealth accumulation. I mean, it is very, as you said, as Piketty said, capital begets capital, wealth begets wealth. And once you have a diversified portfolio and can really take advantage of tax laws that are very uh, business favorable, you exponentially lift your boat. And so um, compared to other households that just aren't able to accumulate it and take advantage of all of these arguably windfalls. And, and that's why I wanted to start our discussion by making sure that our listeners understand the difference between income and wealth, because a lack of access to sufficient income, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, okay, maybe you're, you know, maybe you're putting food on the table and you're paying your bills and maybe you've got a little bit of a rainy day fund, so you're not panicking. But if you don't make just a little bit more to be able to save and then invest, you're going to stay at the same plane. You're never going to get out of that. It's really frustrating for so many households that feel like they're living paycheck to paycheck because they're always, you know, borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. And in fact, a lot of households then have to use debt that can short-term debt they can be very, very expenses. Law students well understand the high interest rates on credit cards. And when you start looking at payday loans and other high cost borrowing, short term borrowings, that can really cut into your cash flow and your income. And you don't get a tax benefit for the interest on those as compared to home ownership. Right, right. I want to shift gears a little bit and I'll, I'll talk, and I think this is particularly relevant because um, 
and I know you're in Las Vegas, so you might not be familiar with this, but Illinois has a ballot proposal to shift to a graduated income tax, uh, a graduate income tax regime. We're currently one of a handful of states that has a flat tax. Um, currently, the income tax that everyone in Illinois pays is 4.95%. It's going, it, the ballot proposal is to shift uh, to a graduated income tax. Which model would you say a graduated in, and I should pause real quick. There are a handful of states that have no income tax and state, the, those states, um, you know, increase other taxes to try and make up for that revenue shortfall. But if we're just speaking in terms of the binary between a flat tax and a graduate income tax, which model would you say uh, exacerbates wealth inequality? Or is, is it more that, you know, they're both bad. They're both bad, at least under the current system, but one is less so. Well, I think that when we step back, you know, taxes are the price or the cost or the way we pay for a civilized society. So we have to have taxes. We have to pay for all these wonderful things that create order for our society. So not having taxes is not an option. So how are we going to raise revenue in a way that doesn't uh, discriminate, that doesn't hinder uh, businesses, that doesn't hinder the success of families? And pretty much uniformly scholars and thoughtful um, sociologists and economists agree the best system is a progressive income tax. Now, you know, it, it can't just be one. You've got to have a whole menu of taxes, of course, because the economy um, is up and down and you want to diversify your tax system. But if you, when we say graduated, I typically think of it as progressive because at the low end, again, there's pretty much an agreement that the at the lowest end, there's the tax liability should pretty much be zero. So families need to be able to pay for housing, for food, for healthcare, the basics. We don't want to be taking food off the table of young children that need food for their bodies and their minds. And so there's got to be some zero bracket amount. And most systems, even a completely flat tax system, has a standard deduction that is effectively a zero bracket amount. And I'm sure Illinois has that too. So it's not the first dollar you make. So after some reasonable zero bracket amount, then you you want to build that rate higher and higher. Why? Well, the marginal value of a dollar. We all know that the first, matters how many people are in your household, but the poverty line is about $12,500 for a household of one. And so at that point, that person really shouldn't be paying any taxes. And so that should be the zero bracket. And then as they start adding to that, the rate should modestly increase. But when you get to the $500,000 mark, 
those dollars are not covering the basics. They're not even covering, you know, the additional items, the luxury items we think of. Everyone has a car, vacations, private school, uh, boats, recreational vehicles, all those other things. You're you're getting to the point that there are investments, security. And so at a certain point, a, a larger chunk can go to a common good. And so when we think of progressive tax rates, you could imagine a, uh, and California as well as some other states, I think uh, one of the East Coast states recently implemented a millionaire's tax. At a million dollars and above, the rate goes up. And you can imagine, you know, I haven't uh, experienced this yet, but at your 10 millionth and one dollar for the year, uh, that additional dollar probably could be taxed at a pretty darn high rate and it wouldn't bother you. Um, and in fact, we have had marginal income tax rates, especially during the wartime, as high as 91%. Um, now, at a certain point, and the good news is we never have it. We don't have a tax system where the marginal tax rate is above 100% because that's obviously a disincentive to uh, earning income. But a, a, a pretty you know, high incline towards those last dollars really shouldn't be too offensive. If I'm not mistaken, critics will say what they perceive, they perceive that to be draconian and they would perceive that to be a a disincentive to entrepreneurial activity, to pursuing um, high value business ventures that from their perspective will create jobs that without the ability, you know, with that ceiling in place or what they, I mean, not ceiling, but for what they perceive to be that um, stick instead of a carrot, it's going to end up hurting society more than whatever revenue might be raised. You know, it's hard to know exactly what the sweet spot is. And I do think that, uh, that ebbs and flows over time. The good news is for most businesses, they can uh, generously deduct expenses. Right now, we have really significant immediate expensing deductions. And so businesses uh, can quite effectively shelter income with expenses and investments in their own activities. Uh, I do think 91% is a rate we haven't seen for decades, so there clearly is some disincentive. But uh, California, I think the highest rate for state income tax is up to maybe 15%, and that doesn't seem terribly onerous, especially at those very high levels. And by the way, to go back to your first question, we are talking income not wealth. So this is for one year. Once you get above a million dollars of taxable income after all your expenses, including giving to charities, putting money into a foundation, etc., um, 15% of that marginal dollar, it's not all of your income. You still get to enjoy some of the 0%, some of the 10%, etc., 
And that's the price of a civilized society, which protects your assets and your children and is going to lead, lead to probably more harmony and happiness. So it sounds like you're saying that any flawed implementation aside, a progressive or graduated income tax regime at the very least aims to lift more people out of poverty, to be more equitable and uh, distribute wealth in a more equitable way. Absolutely. Being that this is a political year, you know, taxes do tend to be a little bit more within the national discussion. Uh, I imagine on November 4th, they will quickly start to fade. Do you think that there's anything to the idea of raising awareness on ha- on the benefits of a, of a progressive tax regime and how it can be properly implemented? And I'm wondering if, if that's so, because the inverse has been shown to be true. And by that, I mean, I'm thinking back to, and I know I'm dating myself on this one, the Ronald Reagan days of lambasting the welfare queen and how that perspective when raised awareness of whether you think that issue was um, hyperbolic, fictionalized, or true, it did lead to a decrease in funding for certain government programs. And so I'm wondering if you think the opposite could hold true, if there were a greater awareness campaign of what a progressive or graduated income tax regime can do, that it might start to pick up some steam and people would look at the tax code in a different way. Uh, I think you're spot on, and I think we need to do a better job at an earlier stage of explaining how our tax systems work and how they don't work. And as a law professor teaching tax, one of the very early on lessons uh, is we actually look at the progressive tax rate structure. And so many students have a light bulb come on pretty quickly that they didn't understand that it's not a uh, it's not a awkward lump to the next bracket meaning that you fill up each bracket with your income so for example bill gates has tons of income. Some of his income is taxed at a zero bracket. And then once that bucket is filled up, it spills over to the 10% and then the 15 and then the 25 and then the 28 and up and up so that the last maybe millions are taxed at the highest marginal rate of 37%. So progressive rates benefit the wealthy as well as the not wealthy. And I think there's a, just a terrible disconnect because our tax system is so complicated. Intellectually not honest politicians love sound bites, the death tax, as you indicated, the welfare queen, uh, these kind of myths and disinformation spinning of our tax system that really hurts all of us. And I think the biggest political nightmare in the tax system that recently comes into my mind is this ridiculous pushing 
for a tax return the size of a postcard. And, you know, it really caught on in a kind of a perverse way because everyone said, sure, I'd love to just do, again, the goal is simplification. I'd love to do my tax return just on a a postcard and mail it in. Well, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act that that kind of pushed that postcard tax return was anything but simple. I mean, it's a complicated mess that people are still trying to figure out. And more importantly, if you step back from it, it really did hurt a lot of taxpayers. And by the way, the tax uh, CPAs and accountants were livid because what they did was they just shrunk down the font and took a lot of the lines and put them on different forms. So yeah, the one form was shrunk down, but now instead of just one two-pager, you have five forms. And you might say, well, who cares since it's done electronically? Well, I have to tell you, after that happened, a lot of my low-income taxpayers that I work with on a pro bono basis, they were really complaining that their tax compliance cost, when they would go to paid preparers, those went way high. It went way up. Why? They're charged by the form. So instead of having one form, now you had six forms. And so it did make life much more complicated. And of course, stepping back from that political spin, first of all, no one would ever send a postcard in with their personal tax information. So that was just, you know, not reality. Moreover, yes, it printed out the size of a postcard, but you had to use the whole page so it didn't even it wasn't even green and it just it it really in uh to me represents people not understanding and politicians being able to say well do you want more money well of course everybody's going to say yes so let's do this well it doesn't achieve the goal so we need law students and as you as you indicate, even the general population to understand the system better so they can be critical and they can push back and say, hey, I don't get that benefit. The affluent get that. So what are you going to do for me? And speaking of, of the general public struggling to understand, I'd, I'd also like to discuss the difference between federal tax systems and state and local tax systems because they're very different regimes and the revenues of course you're going to go to very different things you're not you know your local property taxes are not going to go pay for the marines that's not how that works right. so i'd like i'd like to briefly talk about how state and local governments generate their revenues and um, if i'm not mistaken they are mostly done through consumption consumption taxes you know every time you go fill up your car with gas you're going to pay a little tax on it that's a state and local tax a sales tax is state and local tax if you live in philadelphia there's a soda tax when you and now when you start to think about the intersection of economics and taxes if you assume that all households spend about the same and, and you alluded to um, you know for the 
for the super wealthy, you know, sure you're going to get your boat and everyone's got a car, but it, you know, there there's a eventually you're you're just going to start investing it. From a basic living standpoint, assuming all households spend about the same on consumer goods and services, is it is it true then that only the households with disposable income can invest and then earn passive income, which returns to that point that you mentioned from the Piketty that you know money begets money. Absolutely. And so when we look at state and local tax systems, we think of them as, and they generally are pretty much all the tax systems throughout the country in all the states, including uh, Washington, D.C., have regressive tax systems. And that is because of exactly what you said, in that you've got to consume. So if you're a lower income person, pretty much all of your income goes to consumption. And so most of that is going to be subject to sales tax, uh, which is a consumption tax. Sales tax, gas tax, excise taxes, tire taxes. But if you're wealthy, then you consume only a certain amount and other monies go into savings or if you purchase, so it's interesting, when you purchase stock or bonds, you don't pay a sales tax. But when you purchase clothing, shoes, you do. And so those are really regressive taxes. And that's one reason why we want our federal income tax system and including maybe perhaps our state income tax systems to be progressive to offset that because it makes no sense for the lowest income households to be paying a larger percentage of their income in taxes than the highest income households. Is it, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not that familiar. I have not taken admin law, nor am I particularly familiar with um different states, as well as the federal government's budgeting practices in terms of where particular tax revenues go to what programs. Am I correct in that state and local governments tend to supply more public services than the federal government at a local level, at least? Absolutely. And the biggest uh, key there is uh, K through 12 education, as well as in many states, uh, certainly in Nevada, Um, higher ed as well. And so education is really funded by state and local, as well as a lot of local benefits, such as local government, police, fire, all the protective agencies as well. So then would that then mean that the more regressive a consumption tax model versus a progressive model. The more that you do that consumption tax model, does that starve those local and state and local government services or the revenue needed, which means the rest revenue they have, the more it means that low-income households are forced to fend for themselves? Absolutely. And what ends up happening, especially, and unfortunately, we're really seeing it now, um, a lot of states, as you indicated, don't rely on income taxes. My home state does not have a state income tax, and we rely on gaming taxes, 
hotel taxes, as well as consumption taxes. And so when you face a pandemic, when no one can come to Las Vegas uh, to spend their money, that really hurts the state budget. And as a result, so during recessionary times, when you need that money, you don't have it. That's different than income taxes because income taxes quite often, you know, there's some stable revenue in many, uh, many states, uh, at least at the income side. And so you really need a menu, but regressive taxes, consumption, when it's a recession, these households stop consuming and then the, the cash flow stops as well. You mentioned about the need to diversify. And so it sounds like you're saying that if the state and local government relies too heavily on one thing, like like any other economic unit, you rely too heavily on one thing and that thing dries up, you're in trouble. Absolutely. And I know I hear it in my state as well as other states. So for example, oil and gas, right? When we have an oil and gas crisis, those are heavily taxed in Texas, Wyoming, other similar states. And when that's not Alaska, when that's not generating income or tax revenue, you have a downturn. So you want to diversify. You want to have business taxes. You want to have individual taxes. You want to have consumption taxes and income taxes that are counter cyclical to the extent you can balance that. So we want states that have diversified economies as well as diversified ways of accumulating revenue. When we think of the Great Recession, what happened to property values, they dropped dramatically. So therefore, property taxes dropped as well. And we're talking about the different things that can be taxed. There's also more than one way to tax income because there are different types of income. So I'm sure our listeners have heard, at very least, the phrase capital gains. Can you explain really briefly what a capital gain is? Sure. It's uh, actually very accessible, although a lot of people use that term and then really don't understand what it means. So to have a capital gain, you have to have a capital asset. So what is a capital asset? Well, it's pretty easy. When we define what is a capital asset, we look at what's not a capital asset. And pretty much the big thing that's not a capital asset is inventory. And so at the grocery store, when they're selling apples and oranges and Halloween candy, that is inventory to them. And so when they sell that, that's going to give rise to ordinary income. Now, as an individual, most of your assets are going to be capital assets because you're not selling them in the ordinary course of business. So they're capital assets. In order to have a capital gain, you have to have a capital asset that appreciated. And more importantly, you have to have a realization event. So in its simplest terms, that's a sale or exchange. So a sale or exchange of a capital asset. And I know where you're going with this as to the tax advantage treatment. 
generally, the only way you get a tax advantage treatment is if you've held that capital asset from purchase or inheritance or whatever for more than one year before you have your realization event. And that gain, the difference between your investment in that asset and what you sold it for, that's a gain. That's a capital gain. So I'm gonna, I'll briefly go through a dynamic just to uh, drive this point home for listeners. Uh, if I work my nine to five and I make $50,000 and then I, and that is ordinary income. Income from a job is gonna be taxed at an ordinary rate. And right now the highest rate for ordinary income is 37%. Correct. If I then go buy, uh, let's say stock in Tesla, um, maybe a little risky or volatile, but you know they're doing very well. So mm-hmm. let's say I go buy a stock in Tesla. That's a capital asset. I then hold that stock for one year, and it's gone from being a thousand worth a thousand dollars, and now it's two thousand dollars. So I'm only going to get. We've talked about already on this uh, episode. We've talked about basis. So I spent a thousand dollars, and I I sold it for two. So that first thousand is not taxed because that was my money. So I gain of $1,000 is going to be taxed. But the difference being it's not going to be taxed at 37%, like my nine to five job. It's going to be taxed at what, Professor? So this is interesting. And this is fairly new. Um, It really is somewhat of the uh, Obama uh, administration enacted what I would describe as even progressive capital gains tax rates. So if you have a capital gain uh, from a capital asset that you sold, held for more than one year and you sell it at a gain, that $1,000 gain, it depends. Because if you're a lower income individual, and let's just say you're a law student who doesn't really work, then and you have a $1,000 capital gain, that capital gain, uh, we look at what the ordinary income tax rate would be, and if the ordinary income tax rate would be below 25%, which if you're lower income, it would be, the tax rate is zero. So that actually makes a lot of sense for lower income individuals. Now, if you're a middle income individual, like most of us working individuals, who's ordin- if it was an ordinary income item, it would be... Um, between the ordinary income tax rates between 27 and 37, that gain would be taxed at only 15%. But if that $1,000, if you're Bill Gates or Oprah Winfrey or um, the owner of Tesla, who's making lots of income, then um, that capital gain would otherwise be taxed at the highest marginal rate if it was ordinary income of 37%. So the rate is only 20%. And so we do that because we want to make sure that long-term capital gains are tax advantaged. But why? I mean, why, Professor? I mean, particularly in the context of stock, you know, I had I was fortunate enough, I was lucky enough to have just enough money to go out and buy $1,000 worth of Tesla stock. Uh, I did not. I did not do this. I wish I had done this, but I did not do this. 
But let's say I was lucky enough to have $1,000 to buy Tesla stock and it appreciated in value. It's now worth twice as much as what I paid for. I sold it. Why shouldn't I be taxed at ordinary? Why should I be taxed at a much less rate? What's the rationale behind that? Well, there is some uh, method to the madness. And so, for example, uh, let's to make the hypothetical work a little bit better with the rationalization is let's say you held it for 10 years and it went up significantly over that 10 year period. Well, we know some of that increase is due to what? You paid a thousand ten or twenty or thirty years ago, and now you're selling it for two thousand. Over that long time period, that really isn't such a great return. Some of that increase is due to inflation, and so when we compare today's value against historical cost, that amount of gain is a little bit distortive, right? It's a little bit misleading. So some have suggested to mitigate that, what should you do? Mark to market your basis. All right, I believe Secretary Mnuchin proposed this, right? Yeah, a mark to market your basis. And it's been proposed over time. What's the problem with that? What are we doing with our nice little postcard tax return? <laughs> <laughs> It just adds such complexity because if you're going to do that for stock, why not do it for the house or the car or the jewelry? And of course, there's different inflation adjusters for diamonds versus gold versus silver. And so one way to rough justice that is to have this reduced tax rate. Another rationalization is to encourage investment. We don't want people keeping this money in their mattress. We want people to spend it and push it out into the economy. What is interesting about the inflation adjustment argument, then it doesn't quite make sense for a year and a day, right? maybe we should have different holding periods with different rates. And indeed, California used to do that. It would, if you held it for five years or more, you got a reduced rate as compared to just more than one year. So you can see, though, we start adding complexity and uh, that causes a disconnect between understanding and um, respecting or appreciating. Mm -hmm. And I want to bring it back to make sure that we're not just talking about the tax, because I can get super excited about this stuff. Um, but I want to make sure that we're weaving this in, or it's being discussed through the prism of the wealth gap between white and black Americans. How does the reduced capital gains, and I think it's worth noting before we go any further, that President Trump is proposing to reduce that capital gains tax rate even further. Um, and Vice President candidate Biden is proposing to increase it. Um, but what does this have to do? And I mean, we've touched on this, but I want to make sure the listeners grasp the connection. What does this have to do with perpetuating the wealth gap between Black and white Americans? Well, if you step back from our economy and as we've heard more and more recently, the economy is not the stock market. 
we have this conflict between Main Street and Wall Street. And so while labor, which is sweat of the brow, which is the way most of us earn our income, and disproportionately communities of color are earning income through labor, and actually uh, Latinx even more so hard labor. And so those are essential workers. Labor is taxed very heavily in our country, not only ordinary income tax rates, but also payroll. Payroll, when you have Social Security and Medicare, and then state income taxes, state unemployment, all sorts of state taxes. On top of that, labor is very heavily taxed versus, and if you think about it, then what do you take with that labor income? If you're a low-income household, then you take that after-tax labor income and you consume and pay sales tax with it. As compared to investments, long-term capital gains, which you get this reduced rate, you're not paying payroll taxes on it generally. There are some, uh, the uh, Obamacare tax tried to mitigate that to a certain extent, but generally not. And there's all sorts of ways to shelter that long-term capital gain. And If you look at the demographics who own stock outside of their retirement plan, it is generally speaking, white, wealthy men. So we have a gender gap and we have a uh, race gap. A black woman doesn't, uh, compared to a white man, she makes 62 cents on the dollar. So not only is she making significantly less for the same labor, she's not getting the advantage of preferential tax rates when she reinvests because she's not able to reinvest. And so what happens is we exacerbate it. And over time, and I think we've gotten to, unfortunately, law students, you're kind of at a tipping point time where you're going to be graduating when the wealth gap is so significant that something like 50 Americans own as much wealth as the bottom 50% of our population. That doesn't work. It's alarming. Yeah. The wealthiest 400 uh, households in the United States own more wealth than all black households and a quarter of Latino households combined, which is just staggering, absolutely staggering. And you, you touched on, which, and which we've touched on continually in our discussion, the, the ability to aggregate wealth and then what that allows one to do. Not only does it allow, as we said, money to beget money, but it also allows you to pursue favorable tax treatments. You're able to hire you know, a CPA who is highly skilled, who is able to advise on how best to shelter money. And it also means that you're able to potentially fight any assessments levied by the IRS. If the IRS says you owe this, you now have the attorney to fight it. And I I just want to share a little bit that I uncovered in my research. Uh, You know, 
people are going to do everything that they can to avoid paying taxes. What's really interesting is how much the IRS is actually not getting. The IRS estimates that up to 55% of the income from uh, high net worth households is uh, unreported. And so, of course, it's thus untaxed. And the IRS in the last 10 years has seen its workforce cut by uh, 20%. Its enforcement budget, you know, its ability to go out and pursue audits has been cut by 25%. And so the share of all tax returns subject to an audit has unfortunately declined by 46% from 2010 to 2018, 61% for millionaires. And this is coming from the Congressional Budget Office. All of this boils down to if the IRS were able to collect the true tax liabilities of the top 1%, student debt could be eliminated for nearly every American. The debate between graduated versus flat tax, uh, capital gains rate versus earned income rate, does all of that, or is any of that discussion moot unless Congress approves a budget increase for the IRS and closes wealth? Uh, closes loopholes and pursues a tax code that would be, you know, a little more pro-black, a little bit more anti-wealth aggreg- uh, aggregation. Um, that without, you know, without an enforcement budget and without funding the IRS properly, would any progressive agenda be toothless? You know, that's a really important point. And what is so frustrating is that most individuals earn their income through wages and salaries. And if you earn your income through wages and salaries, you get a W-2 and a copy of that W-2 goes to the IRS. Your taxes are sucked out of your paycheck every month or week or however often, and we all know that, state and federal. So you prepay it, arguably. What's fascinating about that is the reporting compliance on W-2s, it's in the 90%. That's reported because it's given to the IRS. So that is effectively self-audited. Unfortunately, what has happened is Congress has repeatedly defunded the IRS And if you are having cash flow problems as a country or a business, the last thing you want to do is defund your accounts receivable department. There's a (laughs) recent paper that just came out by Robert Reich and a top economist, another economist, that monetized For every dollar the IRS would increase their funding and increase focus on August audits, the return on that is phenomenal. It's like six to one. If you don't collect, you don't get money, right? And more importantly, the point you raised, we have a self-assessment system in that, well, maybe not self-assessment for us W-2 wage earners, But generally speaking, we self-report. So the high-income person, because they have all these investments and all these various pockets where their income comes from, they're able to not report it and there's no information reporting as compared to the W-2 wage earner. 
So they have a lot more capability of um, avoiding paying taxes. And without enforcement, we really are potentially at risk at having people not have faith in our tax system. And if our tax system doesn't have faith, Taxpayers don't have faith in it and think that it's fair and think that everyone's paying their fair share. We're going to have a tsunami of non-compliance, not just at the high income, but they worry that with each drop in compliance, it's hundreds of billions of dollars that are at risk. And you can push people into the cash economy and really stall out the system. So funding the IRS is critical for enforcement, and especially at the high end, where people are increasingly thinking that it's not fair. ProPublica came out with a report uh, about a year or so ago that showed that the top 10 counties that are being audited are... 80% on average black. Eight of these counties are in Mississippi. The poverty rates are triple the national average. And two of them, one is in Alabama and one is in Louisiana. So this is telling you we're disproportionately auditing low-income black households who are the most vulnerable. And if you look at the top 10 counties that with the lowest audit rate, they're 90% white and very low poverty rates. That doesn't make intuitive sense. And it reeks of racism. Now, you might say, well, our tax system is colorblind. Well, not in its impact. This is empirical data that is easy to prove out. And that, that's really frustrating to hear. And I imagine that that is because they're easy targets. You know, if the IRS requires a certain win rate, essentially, like, you know, any other kind of uh, law or um, legal enforcement, you know, the district attorney wants to have a certain conviction rate. I assume that the IRS wants to be able to say, look, we're out there winning. We're out there collecting it's a lot easier to collect from somebody who's representing themselves pro se or someone who can, you know, not afford to hire the very best and brightest uh, legal minds to defend you on an audit. The sad thing about it is the IRS commissioner was asked. And of course the IRS commissioner is relatively new to that job a, a couple years in. So he obviously, this is a long history. So it really isn't his he is not responsible for it, but the answer was it's cheap to audit low income individuals because it's 99.99% are correspondence audits. So, what does that mean? A computer kicks it out. It's an earned income tax credit audit, which is a working poor family audit. And as you know from your tax class, taxpayers have the burden of proof. So if you don't answer the letter, maybe because you didn't get it or you didn't understand it, English is a second language, or you have no idea what that legally said, you lose. That is frustrating. 
and I, what I, I think it's important for listeners to grasp, as I think you mentioned, the cascading effect that this can have. You know, in my research, I uncovered that if the IRS does not see its budget increase, even if kept at current levels, over the next 10 years, it will fail to collect $7.5 trillion. With the T. Trillion with the T. It is mind-boggling. <laughs> it is. And, but as, as, as you mentioned, it, ha- it can have a cascading effect. And you also mentioned how it can erode trust in the IRS, but it can thereby erode trust in other areas of government. Because if you have some kind of social service program that just simply can't, doesn't have the funds that it needs to operate as it's supposed to, well, people are just going to say, oh, that, you know, blank government service just doesn't work. It's just not working. It's like, well, actually, it's because we don't have any money and we're not getting any money because we don't have enough money to audit the people who aren't paying enough in taxes. You know, we've talked about specific tax laws, policies, and IRS enforcement and how they, they work in concert to perpetuate uh, the white and black wealth gap. My question is, I'm hoping we can uh, bring our discussion to a close on a more positive note. Where can we go from here? I've heard Cory Booker talk about baby bonds. I know Elizabeth Warren proposed a wealth tax. What do you, you know? Where, what are your thoughts? What are uh, what is a meaningful way in which the tax code can be leveraged to bring the wealth gap between whites and blacks a lot narrower? Well, the good news is there are brilliant minds who are thinking about ways to mitigate and turn this big old tanker around. Baby bonds is really the idea of Derek Hamilton. I encourage your audience members to Google him. He's phenomenal. He's at the New School. And in fact, he's been described as uh, he's clearly a top economist upcoming. He's been described as a preacher scholar, and he's just a joy to li- His TED Talk, this is an economist who talks about tax. His TED Talk has been listened to well over a million times, so it's engaging. Listen to it. What we need to do is use the tools in our fiscal tool chest, like the tax code, to mitigate these issues. And there's a lot of things we can do. Baby bonds. And an an analog to that is the child tax credit. Child tax credit, those of you kids out there, uh, having a child is not cost beneficial. There's a lot more to it than the tax benefits. But I I don't have kids, but I want to make sure your kids are as smart and as wonderful and as well-fed and well-dressed as they can be so they can take my tax class someday. But we can we can push out money through the tax system, like the child tax credit. It's $2,000 per child. It's not fully refundable. So lower income people don't get as much. They increase the phase out cap. It doesn't start till $400,000. I don't know that that makes sense. There's things we can do. The earned income tax credit that's over audited for these poor families in Mississippi Let's stop auditing them. Yeah, maybe they get in a dollar or two or more too much. Too bad. It generally goes to the economy, right? And creates an exponential benefit. A wealth tax? What about a stock transaction tax? When you buy shoes or clothing, quite often you have to pay sales tax. What about stock? 
There's incredible volume there. And of course, a wealth tax. Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax didn't start until 50 million and above. I hope all of you have to pay a wealth tax on your inflation-adjusted 50 million or more. And if not, it's easy to mitigate it because all you have to do is write a check to your favorite law school and they will be happy to take it and name a tax building after you. Well, Professor Lipman, thank you for bringing, the, bringing us to a close on a more positive note. I hope that our listeners were able to take something away from this discussion that shows them that the power the tax code can have, as well as the relevance it has to their lives and the role it can play in bringing a more equitable future to realize. Professor Lipman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And thanks for your wonderful, evocative questions. And the moral of this story is, of course, take tax classes. <laughs> thank you so much. See you next time, everyone. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. And thanks to our predecessors, the Dialogue DeNovo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.